if you've done any reading, you have certainly heard uh, the two names of these men who are prolific, profound Christian authors of our time, uh, just spectacular authors, uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And if you haven't read, you might still know their names because now Hollywood's picked up on their genius and has cashed in on it. And so you've certainly heard of Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, these two incredible authors have done uh, spectacular work at creating these fantastical worlds that are so far removed from who we are. And yet, even though these worlds are incredibly removed from who we are, somehow they take the story of Scripture and the story of human existence, and particularly the story of God with people, and they put it on display in a way that just blows our minds, and it informs us about ourselves in ways that it's really hard to even picture in our own world. Like, it's hard to even understand that in our own world. And then you put it in these fantastical worlds that they make, and somehow we begin to understand ourselves more. It's incredible. And uh, what's interesting about these, these two men and these stories, these uh, kind of fantasy stories that they tell, is they share the same motif for their story, and it's that of war. War. Honestly, when you're trying to describe Scripture and when you're t- trying to describe humanity and the relationship with God, why would war be the, the framework, the motif that they choose in order to describe it? Well, if you read the Scriptures honestly, it's really hard to miss the idea of war all throughout the scriptures. I mean, it, it starts off, way, even like way back, there's this allusion to something that we don't know much about. There's it, just a whisper of it in a prophet. And it's about this clash of power in heaven when the archangel Lucifer decides that he wants to vie for power and he wants to overthrow God. It almost sounds like Greek mythology or something, you know? And there's this, there's this thing out there, this angel who decides that he wants to be in charge and he challenges the throne of God and he's cast down. And then God goes and he creates humanity, his children, and he places them securely and safely on earth in the garden. But somehow this prince of darkness that's been cast down now comes and finds God's children and he has a plan. And he decides to go into psychological warfare and to manipulate and to somehow gain the allegiance of these children and to lead them astray. And so he does, and he challenges them on a truth level, he challenges them on a heart level, he challenges them on a faith level, and he goes after us until we turn and we become in bondage to this dark leader. And so what does God do? Of course, he, he decides that he's not okay with his children just being taken captive by this leader, and so he sends his only son, as a savior of the world, and he offers him as an atonement, as a ransom for these people. And what happens is, is this precious son of God, like a lamb led to slaughter, is placed on the altar of a Roman cross. And there he has died, and his blood is shed, and he's crushed for our iniquities. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what ends up happening is, is that in this moment, Something spectacular takes place. The bondage, the grip on our hearts has been shattered and has been broken. And those of us who desire to and those of us who would choose to now have freedom to re-engage the kingdom of light and re-engage relationship with the Father. And the one who has been, ra- the, we have, are the ones who have been ransomed. And our ransom, the one who has been hung on this tree and brutalized on this altar, much like the picture of Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia, who's hung there and who has been, who has been uh, blasted for us, he now rises from the dead and he goes back and he's, and he's in heaven with his father. And we're told that someday he's going to return in, in a mighty battle. 
We know now that the victory is sure, but here we are in the space in between. The space in between the two advents of Christ. The advent where he came down in human form in order to hang on a cross for us. And the advent when he will return again. And he will come with might. And this time he will not come like a lamb led to slaughter. He will come riding a white horse. And he will be called faithful and true. And he will stand in the battle of Armageddon to win once and for all. And in the meantime, we stand in this space in between. And our lives, while it's very simple what the call is, the call is very simple. It's to be found in Christ. It's very simple. And yet it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Living the life of faith in Christ, walking with Him. While it's very simple, it's, it's an epic struggle for all of us to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so here is the story of Scripture from cover to cover, from beginning to end, a story of war. A war over our hearts and our souls. And while if we have given our lives to Christ, the eternity may be secure. And what's going to happen in the long run, it's already sure. We know that God wins. But there's still something to be fought over in this space in between. Our lives here and now, will they be lived for the purpose and the mission by which we were created? to spread the glory of God? Will our lives reflect the Savior? Will they reflect God? And Satan doesn't die easy. He fights hard, and he wants to take down everyone he can with him, and he wants to distract us from our purpose, from our mission, to reveal the glory of God. So here we are in the space in between, and from cover to cover, it's a story of war. And so if we ask why C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien may use the motif of war in order to describe us, to not do that would be akin to telling the story of Romeo and Juliet without talking about family feud. It wouldn't make any sense. There'd be no struggle. What's it all about? You have to have the context of the war. You see, the war in Scripture is all about our hearts, and it's a great love story about a God and His people, about a father and His children, about a bridegroom and His bride, and the epic struggle to see this love come to fruition, but it's only found through war. Through a war that one fights dirty, and the other sacrifices himself. And we find ourselves in the middle of it, having our own war and our own battle to hold, to grab a hold and stay within Christ. There's war all around us right now. There's war everywhere, right? A spiritual war, war for the battles of kingdom of light and darkness. Last week, we talked about the the national prayer, a day of prayer for the persecuted church. And we said, there are people currently, presently, right now, as we speak in prisons in other parts of the world who are being tortured right now to recant their faith. That is a spiritual warfare that's being manifested so directly that it's becoming physical torture. A spiritual warfare that becomes physical torture. We cannot deny that that warfare is taking place in our world. What we can do is choose to not care. We can do that. There's a war that's happening right now for the minds of our children. When they go to school, when they're in the relationships, when the entertainment bombards their minds, we know, come on, there's a war over our kids' minds. You know? That's what's happening right now. Is there spiritual war over our kids' minds? Now, there is a question as to whether or not we're aware of that and engaging in that and doing anything about it. 
But there is no question that the war is taking place. There's a war right now, right here in this room as I speak. There are angels and there are demons present with us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. In this room, there is war going on, and it's a war over our minds, over our hearts, and over our souls. And right now, the enemy would seek to destroy and to kill, to distract, to dissuade, to lead us astray, to get us entertained, to get us oblivious, to get us resentful, to get us angry. Ultimately, to have us be self-indulgent, overly self-aware, self-consumed, self-reliant, completely self-focused. Because as he gets us to look inward, we stop looking toward the mission and we stop looking toward Christ and we stop looking toward one another. And the battle wages here and now over us in the space in between. And there's no getting around the fact that that battle exists. However, there is this real question about what we will do in the battle. We can live in denial about the fact that there's battle, but it doesn't keep us on the sidelines of the battle. See, we're never on the sidelines of the battle. We're actually always engaged in the battle, whether we like it or not. We can live in denial, but we are always engaged. Because every action or lack thereof, Every interaction we have with each other and every reaction to our circumstances around us is all submissive to the philosophy of one of two great leaders, a terrible leader and a wonderful leader, the captain of the Lord's army, the king of kings, lord of lords, who would seek to guide us into all wisdom and all truth and all light, or the prince of darkness of this world, who would have us be self-consumed, bitter, hatred, entertained, oblivious, and unaware And everything that we choose and every way we choose to interact, there's a battle over that decision constantly happening. Of course, as Christians, what we would hope and what we desire is that we find ourselves in submission to Christ. And and, and Paul tells us, this is why he starts this passage in verse 10 there in chapter 6. This is why he starts it. And he says, be strong. Be strong. You are in war. You are in battle. What happens in battle? Be strong. You have to be strong. If you will win this war, you have to be strong. But the problem is, and here's the obvious problem, is that history reveals that we are incredibly weak. And it's not just the history of humanity that reveals it. It's the history of my life, and I'm sure of yours too, that we are weak. And no matter how much we want to be found in submission to Christ, we find ourselves incapable of living submitted to Christ. And, and inevitably, invariably, we end up finding ourselves through action, lack of action, reaction, interactions, we find ourselves more submissive at times to this prince of darkness, to the king of kings who's ransomed us on a cross. And it's this struggle and it's this battle. But the beautiful thing is that Paul doesn't stop by saying, be strong. What does he say? He says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, what Paul does is he ends the book of Ephesians the same way he started it. 
He started this book of Ephesians. Remember, anything that was outside of Christ, there is nothing outside of Christ in the church. There's only Christ. When Christ dies, we die. And when he's reborn, we're reborn in him or we're not reborn at all. There is only Christ. And that's how he starts this book of Ephesians. And here at the end, after describing what church is, he gets to the end and says, we're in this epic struggle, this terrible battle. And be strong in the Lord. And he reminds us again that we don't have the strength to win this thing. It's not in our own strength that we can fight this battle. We actually need Christ always. If we try to man up and discipline ourselves and get it done and fight and live the way we're supposed to and do it, it doesn't work. It happens on our knees before God saying, I need you. I cannot do this. I have to be found in you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So what Paul does with the rest of this passage, it's awesome. What he does is he, he shows us piece of armor by piece of armor how to defend ourselves from the enemy, not by being strong, but by being in the Lord. So he tells us, put on the full armor of God. It's not our armor. It's not just the armor of Christianity. This is God's armor armor. This is like, you remember when David put on the armor of Saul and he couldn't fit in it? Well, we wouldn't be able to fit in the armor of God except for this, that when we died and were reborn, we were reborn in Christ. And now so Christ's armor fits on us because we are a part of Christ and we get to carry his armor. This is finding ourselves in the shadow of Christ, in the shelter of Jesus himself. And piece by piece, As we put it on, it is Christ being put on us, all around us. And what we know is that the enemy will not stop until he distracts us, dissuades us, persecutes us, and even kills us. He wants to end us. But for every attack, there is a piece of armor that can stop the attack. There's a way in which we can pursue Christ and have Christ wrap around us. First of all, he talks about the belt of truth. He says... Put on the, gird yourselves up with a belt of truth. <laughs> I, I can't, it's hard for me to, to do the armor of God without using language from the King James. Gird around your loins the belt of truth. Whoa. <laughs> I don't even know what all that's about, but wow. The belt of truth. What does a belt do when it comes to the armor? It keeps everything in place. That's what it does. Yeah, you know, you have all this stuff on, you got to keep it bound together and in the right place. You can't just have your, your breastplate flapping over here and, you know, then you're exposed. Everything's got to be in place and secured. And the belt of truth keeps everything in place. It might even be you holster your sword there and certainly it has the added benefit of keeping your pants up, which is always good. The belt of truth. We live in a world right now that uh, when it comes to truth, believes that truth is discovered by one primary means by what the eyes can see and the mind can understand. So whatever our, mind, whatever our eyes can see and whatever our mind can understand, that is what we know of truth. It's a philosophy called secular humanism. And that philosophy is a philosophy that, that the enemy, this is one of his grand attacks, is to take us off center of truth, to give us lies and deceptions. You see, from the beginning, Satan's first attack, of course, is always to go after truth. And so he asks Adam and Eve in the garden, did God say you would surely die? And he, he asks them a question about truth. 
And he challenges them on a truth level because the first thing he wants to do is the easiest way to get us. If he can change what it is we believe to be true, then everything else is wide open. You know, it, it changes everything from the ground up. That's the thing that puts everything together. It's the foundation. It's the structure. It's every, it's, it's what keeps everything in place. And if he can undo the belt, man, all of a sudden everything's all over the place, you know, and nothing works anymore. And we're losing our core and we're losing our center and we're losing our truth. And in a world that believes that truth is found primarily through what the eyes can see and the mind can understand, then what ends up happening is this. We recognize the next step is that we are flawed individuals and our eyes can only see so much and our mind can only comprehend so much. So last year, we didn't know anything. This morning I saw on MSNBC, they, uh, on, the, on the website, it said 12 new species of, of uh, bees have been found. Of, of like, they're like honeybees. And 12 new species. And they said, but actually, when we, they say that we've discovered them, They've probably been there all the time. We just didn't recognize that there was a nuance in the difference between them all. See, last year we would have said there was this. Our, our minds understood and our eyes saw this. But this year we understand it's a lot different than we thought the year before. And that means that next year we're going to think something radically different. And yet if the end all and the be all of understanding truth is these eyes and this mind and yet we understand it's flawed, we find ourselves in trouble and we have to come to the place of admission that we can't actually discover the truth. Because we don't know what tomorrow will reveal. So truth in its totality can't be discovered by the human mind and by the human eyes. It falls short every time. And that's exactly what's happened in our world. So we've moved to a place called moral relativism, which means that no one person has a right to tell another person what's right and what's wrong because no one person can understand and discover the truth. There's one problem with that is there's a hole in that thinking. And the thinking is, by what authority do you say that no one person has the right to tell another person? Who gave you that right? That's still your reasoning that's telling you that. And your reason falls short by your own admission. You see, truth cannot be discovered by the human eyes and by the human mind. That's not how truth is first discovered. It's not the only way it's discovered. You see, truth is bigger than us. Truth pre-exists us and it will outdate us. It will outlast us. Truth is not touched by us. We can't affect truth. We can't change truth. We can't move truth. That's why it keeps things together. Because it's stronger than us. It's bigger than us. And you can run against this cement wall all you want. But truth, when we hit it, it remains truth and there's nothing we can do about it. We can deny it. We can pretend it's not there. We can try to manipulate it. But at the end, it will remain true. And we will find ourselves standing on it or broken by it. Because it's truth. And so he says, take the belt of truth and put it on. One of the things that's a problem in our day and age is that we say science and truth and, and faith can't coexist, that they're in a battle. And I don't believe that's true at all. I believe that science and faith were made to fit together. Let me explain. The, uh, the scriptures say, they say that uh, the Lord has formed the foundations of the earth and they are firm, that he has established it on the waters and it cannot be moved. He, it says that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Are those things scientifically true? <laughs> 
It is confusing, isn't it? Because Galileo discovered that the world is not standing still, that the world is actually moving and it's revolving around the sun. And the sun doesn't actually rise in the east and set in the west. We move. And that while God has firmly established the earth, it's spinning like this and going in circles at the same time. And good science reveals this. And so we discovered it. But what happened by the church to Galileo for his discoveries? He landed himself in prison for all of his life for heresy because he was denying the truth of Scripture. Scripture, except it wasn't the truth of Scripture that he was actually denying. It was human dogma. What it was, was our interpretations of Scripture, which can be equally as flawed as our interpretations of nature. And unless our dependence is on Christ instead of our dogmas, we will find that we don't allow our faith to be shaped by science. And true science should be permissible in the realm of faith. And the reason is because in Romans 1, we are told that there's enough revealed of God in nature to hold us accountable. We're told that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament reveals His handiwork. If I believe that this world that we live in is created by the Master in some way, then what I should also understand is the more I study it and the more I understand it, the more it's going to reveal about God. And I don't have to be afraid to look honestly at the facts about science. Because at times, even though it may look different than what I read in here, I understand that the same God who made this is the same God who made all of this and somehow some way it will be reconciled and I might not be able to understand it now but it won't do me or anyone else any good to deny the facts of science or the facts of what are stated in here all I can say is my interpretations of this and my interpretations of that are limited but I know this to be true and I know that there's truth out there but our ability to understand it is still growing on the other hand Galileo while he got locked up something else happens Josh was telling me about this woman in Israel right now who, uh, she's an archaeologist and discovered these ruins that are, uh, she believes when she found them, she's not a person of faith, she's an agnostic, is irreligious, and uh, she found these ruins, and as she looks at them and studies them, she believes they match up with the, the biblical account of David's palace. And because she said that it might be David's palace, the entire archaeological community in that area rejected her because, they, because she said it, it related to this word. She's not a person of faith. She's not trying to prove the Bible true. She's not messing with the facts. She's trying to understand it. Why would they reject her because of this? The easy answer is to say, well, it's people who don't want to believe in God, and so therefore they'll reject the, the truth, even if it's going to hit them in the face, if it means that it's going to prove God true. That's the easy answer, and there may be truth to that, but there's another answer that I believe is more profound and more important. And that's that too many things like Galileo have happened. There's been all sorts of bad archaeology that's happened in order to try to prove this true. You see, there's been people who have manipulated archaeology and manipulated science in order to try to prove this Bible true. And they've done bad work and bad science and have lost credibility. And what happens now is when you bring up the name of the Bible or anything connected to it, an archaeologist dis dismisses the thought because they can't trust it anymore because there's been so much bad archaeology done in the name of faith. We've lost credibility. In addition to that, there is obviously a movement at times where people don't want to admit that there's anything connected to God. And the combination of those two things is lethal when it comes to science actually being informed by the truth of Scripture. Sometimes our science is absent of the truth 
that comes through faith. And sometimes our faith is absent of the observation that can come through science. But see, when it comes to discovering truth and putting on the belt of truth, it's not about just good science and it's not about just good Christian doctrine. See, truth actually can be discovered. Did you know that? The Bible actually says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you know how I can say that? Because Jesus stands up and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, truth isn't just a concept. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just a science. It's a person. It's Jesus himself. And good science is not absent from a relationship with Christ. I believe that if I was a scientist or an archaeologist, the most important thing I could do every morning is wake up and get on my face before God and say, God, help me to discover the truth about this whole situation, about everything I'm going to study today. Help me to understand your creation more. And then not take my dogmas or my doctrines and and enforce them on everything, but just to be able to say, I'm in the presence of God, and he's given me a good mind, and if I study this thing, he's going to inform me more. And in the same way, As a theologian, as a theologian being able to say, it's not what I've previously learned about doctrine. It's not just what science tells me. I'm going to sit here on my face before God and say, I'm not going to be able to understand these scriptures unless I am in Christ. And I need to be submitted to him personally. And I've known many of theologians who have done incredible work with brilliant minds. I don't, I've not known them personally. I've known them through reading. But as you read their stuff and, and those who are not necessarily submitted to God, who can blow your mind with thoughts, and yet can lead you astray in doctrine because they're not personally submitted to Christ. The belt of truth is found in submission to the person of truth, Jesus. So take on to yourself the belt of truth. Otherwise, secular humanism would have us believe that we are the deciders of truth, which is a lie of Satan. It would have us believe in moral relativism, that you can't really know what's right and wrong, lie of Satan. Of religious syncretism, that all religions are the same, lie of Satan. The belt of truth is found in submission to Jesus. After the belt of truth, if if Satan can't get us by getting us to believe something false, and if our minds are in a good place, well then he moves on to the next step. Now, it's not just that he's uh, hoping that we don't have a belt on and our armor's flapping all over the place. Now, what he's hoping is he's going to do something different. If he can't get to our minds, he's going to get to something else. And so Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does the breastplate cover? The heart, the chest, the heart. If he can't get our mind, then what he decides to do is he decides to go after our heart. So we might believe the right things in our mind, but now he's going to seduce us. And so at first he might ask them, did God surely say that you would die? And then the next thing is he does is he shines that apple up. He says, this is tasty, isn't it? Doesn't that look good? Looks tasty. Why don't you just try it, buddy? First one's free, you know? And so here it is, you know, the, the, the temptation for our hearts to be satisfied, the yearning of our heart to be satisfied by something other than Christ. And so we're told to take on the breastplate of righteousness because the breastplate of righteousness is a lifestyle that protects us. Righteousness is that which keeps us doing the right thing, living the right way, and not being turned astray. See, what happens is, is if he grabs a hold of my heart 
And if he tempts me and I want to taste the pleasures of this world, what ends up happening is it's like a parent who's in the front seat of the car and the kids are in the back and something's going on with the kids and they're driving, not that this ever happens, and they're driving and they turn around to reach back to the kids and do something. And what happens to that left hand? Turns ever happened? Reach back for something? Look up, whoa. And this is what happens. Our minds may be sharp and we might believe biblical doctrine. We might believe the truth of Scripture. We might refute the things that come against us. But then we're tempted to drink of the satisfaction of the devil's ways. You know? And, it, and, and he calls us to certain levels of lust, to certain levels of selfishness, to materialism, to pride, to all of these different things that he calls us into. And if we allow our hearts to go there, and to taste the pleasures that we're not supposed to taste, then what ends up happening is just like that mom turning, our hearts turn, and as our minds are supposed to be steady, our hearts turn, and soon our focus turns. And as our focus turns, our minds begin to change. I can tell you about person after person who I know of who was strong in their faith, who went to Bible college with me, who who were great in their faith, and, and they didn't buy into some garbage theology or philosophy. But what they did do is they got caught up in the temptations of this world. And soon, they didn't know what they believed anymore. They lost sight of truth because their heart was unprotected because they weren't in a lifestyle of righteousness. You see, righteousness is a special thing. There's the imputed righteousness of God. That's that point that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is the point that when God looks at us after the cross, he looks down and in the spiritual world, when the Father looks at us, we are in Christ. So therefore, we are now righteous. And when God looks at us, no matter what our sins, no matter what our failures, all he sees is beautiful righteousness because of what's been done on the cross. However, we live in the space in between. And so even though in the eyes of God we are righteous, we still have to walk out our faith here and now in this world. And so the doctrine of sanctification is the idea that this righteousness that he placed on us has to be worked out in our lives and in our lifestyles. We actually have to live righteous lives. If we don't live the righteous life that he's called us to, we are not fulfilling the mission. We are not becoming the people of God who spread his glory. You can't spread his glory when not holding his values through your lifestyle. breastplate of righteousness is there to guard our hearts. The bell of truth guards our minds. After this, if he can't get us through taking our heart astray, if our hearts still glory in God and our minds still stay in the right place, there's a third thing that he does. You see, as our call is to glorify God through the unity of the body, the enemy comes in and he decides that he's going to distract us. Where truth is a static thing that doesn't change and righteousness is kind of a black and white thing that we have to choose to submit to and live within. Now comes something a little more dynamic. It's relationships. In relationships, what he seeks to do is bring up less than ideal situations in our lives that we have to respond to and react to. Somebody is going to walk out of here today and someone else in this room is likely going to say something to one of us that's going to be painful to hear. And there's a question about how we're going to respond in that moment. We're going to walk out of here and we're going to talk about the fact that there was the persecuted church overseas, there's the the battlefield of our children, but there's going to be a question as to whether or not we can actually respond and run to 
them because something's going to happen in our life that's going to distract us. You see, stuff comes up. We get distracted. We get hurt. And when we get hurt or distracted or whatever, we stop looking where we're supposed to look and we don't respond the way we're supposed to. And instead, what ends up happening is we become self-consumed again. This is called, it says, having your feet, again, King James, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have your feet fitted with these shoes. Have you ever seen those new shoes? I think Dave has a picture of these new shoes. You seen these things? These like trail shoes that have the fingers on them, or the toes on them. So we're, look at that guy's like fingers going through the toes over there. That's just creepy kind of. Like I wouldn't even do that if I had bare feet. Like, <coughs> yeah, anyway, I don't know. These are supposed to be spectacular uh, shoes these days for running on the trail because they're supposed to form right to your foot or something. And like you're supposed to be able to feel everything and yet still have the protection. Well, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, what it's actually about is this. It puts me in a spot where no matter what happens, no matter what stones there are on the trail, no matter what person has fallen off the trail, I can respond quickly and appropriately without being held up. Why? Because I'm in a place of peace. And so if I'm running and I'm out on my run and now all of a sudden there's a log here, I can just bounce right over that and keep going. If all of a sudden something cuts me off, I can just kind of spin around it. I have my fancy shoes on, you know, that allow me to respond. If I'm running down the trail and I see this person along the side of the road who's in need, I can bounce right off the trail and go and help them. It's readiness to do what it is that God calls us to. And the reason we're ready is because there's already a peace inside of us. See, if there's turmoil within us, then we're conflicted every time something comes up. When that person says something inappropriate about me, ah, now I don't know what to do. There's tension and I'm struggling and now I'm no longer in love and there's affliction and there's all this problem. And I see this person in need over here, but I'm really trying to do this with my life and I don't have peace, so I'm trying to accomplish this and that's going to be a distraction and I can't move the way I'm supposed to. Because the gospel of peace hasn't permeated me to the point where I can be free to move however God wants me to move. Unless we are in a place of peace with God, we can't respond appropriately when the obstacles come. So he goes after our minds. Then he goes after our hearts. Then he goes after our dynamis, our, our ability to be dynamic and move appropriately in relationships. He seeks to disrupt our minds with truth. He, he, speaks to, he seeks to disrupt our hearts with a lack of righteousness, with immorality. And then he seeks to destroy our relationships by a lack of peace. Now, after all of this, if I stay with my head where it's supposed to be and I stay with my heart where it's supposed to be and if my relationships are staying where they're supposed to be, he has another trick in the bag. He has a whole quiver of them. See, these are the flaming arrows. And this is why Paul says, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. You know what these flaming arrows are? These are brutal. See, he's called the accuser of the saints. This is what he does. He accuses us all the time. He gives us sucker punches. And there's very few things in this. There's nobody who has aim like Satan. See, what he does is he takes out one of these arrows and he just locks it and he waits and he watches our lives. And since he's the prince of darkness, he knows exactly where our failures are and he knows where our faults are. He knows where our weaknesses are. And he's just looking and he's waiting. And then he finds that corner of our heart, that weak spot, that spot where it's like we think we're strong, but we're not that strong. And he lets it go. And all of a sudden, I hear something in my spirit or in my mind 
you're ugly. You stink at what you're doing. You're not that good. Remember that sin back there? You're a failure. You've disappointed God. You haven't raised your children well. Look at your children. Look at what they're doing. That's ridiculous. You're terrible. You actually aren't that good at walking with Jesus. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You're not that good at your job. Everyone else is getting promoted and you're sitting here. Look at you. You're pathetic. You can't trust yourself to make money. You're going to run out of money. You're not going to have anything. You're not going to have anyone who cares about you. You're not going to have anyone who loves you. And he hits us right in that spot that we can't defend against. And there's only one way that we can defend against it. It's called the shield of faith. Because what faith says is it says something beautiful. You see, the enemy wants me to be self-consumed because as soon as he hits me with one of those arrows, what ends up happening is no matter how much I believe the right thing and my heart's going the right place and I'm living a righteous lifestyle, no matter how much I'm at peace with other people, instantly, if he sucker punches me like that, my focus is not on God anymore. My focus is not on my brother and sister. Instantly inward. Instantly I'm ashamed and I'm inward. And then I try to compensate for that by making something happen in my life. And so what he does is he tells us to pick up the shield of faith. And you know what faith says? And this is what happened. I want to get, this is just a practical thing that I want to tell you. This is how this works. Anytime that I feel an accusation of the enemy, this is the, this is the first thing, first line of defense is to agree with him. It's counterintuitive, but you agree with him. Because he says, Tim, you know what? You're pathetic. And I'm like, you have no idea how pathetic I am. You have no idea. Absolutely no idea. And you know what? That's why when Jesus died on a cross, I stayed in the grave with him. And when he rose from the dead, there's no Tim left because Tim Deering was pathetic and he deserved to die, so he did. And when Christ rose, I rose as a part of Christ. And I'd like you to tell me that Christ is pathetic because all I am is a member of the body of Christ. And when the Father looks at me, he sees righteousness and he sees beauty and he sees everything good because he sees Christ. And what you want to accuse me of, you're accusing a dead man. You know? And yeah, that stuff still messes around here and there and tries to act like it's alive, but it's not. It's a dead man walking. The only thing that's true and alive is that Christ is incarnate and I live within Him now. And try to accuse me of anything wrong when my reputation is the reputation of Christ. Shield of faith believes what the Scripture says that I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. shield of faith that keeps us from being distracted by the fears and the shames that the enemy would throw at us with these darts. After he's gone after our, all of that, you know, he's, he's gone after our minds, he's gone after our hearts, he's gone after our relationships, he's gone after our own personal psyche, and then there's this last thing that Paul says, this last group of things he says here, and he says, take unto yourself, after you've done all this, take unto yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's a helmet protect? Help me out. Thank you. The head. Your elbow. There we go. It it protects the head. Now, didn't we already talk about truth and we already talked about the mind? So why is he saying protect? In Ephesians, back in chapter 4, it says there's one body 
And it all, it's all joined, all the parts are joined and held together by every supporting ligament which takes us up to the head, which is Christ. See, this is his armor, it's not ours. And this helmet is called a helmet of salvation. Because what it does is it protects our connection to the head, which is Christ. And no matter what's happened with my truth, and no matter what's happened with my heart, and no matter what's happened with my relationships, and no matter what's happened with the accusation, the main thing that I always need is to remain connected to the head. And what he's going to say over and over again is, you're not in Christ. You're not actually a Christian. That's not true. Look at you. You don't match up with all that. You're not righteous. You don't know all the truth. You don't walk in peace. And then Paul says, appeal to salvation. Because at the end, there's nothing he can do when it comes to salvation. My connection to Christ is not of my own merit. It's not by, it's by grace I've been saved through faith. This is not of myself. It's a gift of God, not of works. No one can boast about this. When there's accusation, when there's battle, when there's war, I appeal to one thing and it's the foundation of my connection to God. It's salvation. It starts with humility, with a knee bowed. This is the only way I'm even connected to him is because of him. And so I'm getting on my knees and I just say, it's all you. Salvation's free. It's the ultimate protection, you know? That in the end of the day, I'm only here because it's on him, not on me. So you're going to have to fight him. And then he says, the word of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, if it was not for the word of God, we don't know what the truth is. If it's not for the word of God, we have no idea what righteous living is and what the breastplate looks like. If it's not for the word of God, we have no idea how to understand the truth in a way that gives us peace. And if it's not for the word of God, then we don't have anything to put faith in that protects us from those lies of shame that come against us. If we don't have the word of God, we don't even understand salvation. If we don't have the word of God, we don't have any of the armor at all. That's why we have to live in this word, believe in this word, Eat this and consume this word. Digest this word. Memorize this word. Be deeply involved in this word because what this is, is it's the, it, this is the weapon here. This is what, where we find all of it. This is what gives us the ability when all of that stuff comes. It says, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to penetrate between the joint and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. It's this word that actualizes all those other things in this way. It's the thing that informs us about all those other things. So what truth is, what faith is all about what gives me peace is found here and it's the it's the thing that gives me the exact nuance i need in order to understand all of those things and i need to live in this word now there's this last thing that he gives us and this is uh it's funny i always used to think of this as an afterthought and part of that is because um some of the places where uh, i learned about the armor of god and learned to memorize it were places that didn't know what to do with spirit They only knew what to do with information. And so all of this stuff about the armor of God was like information and discipline. And it was all kind of self-reliant, you know? But then what happened, and and it looks like an afterthought here in Ephesians when he gets to the place where it says, um, in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then 18, I always thought of this as like the afterthought. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Like, it's like, the, yeah, I always thought, like, each of the other things had a piece of armor. This one doesn't have 
a, a piece on its own. You know, it's just the afterthought. Like, oh, and by the way, also pray. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. That's not at all what's happening. It says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Let me tell you what this is. Prayer is the actualization, the realization, the ability to take every one of these things and make it actually functional. You see, the, the, what happens is, is that I can say that the belt of truth is going to protect me, but just knowing truth doesn't actually do much. And you know, what's more is I can't even know truth without prayer because he is truth. And therefore, to interact with him, I have to pray. And then if I know the truth, the battlefield of my children's mind is still happening, and I can know the truth and try to teach them the truth. But in actuality, this isn't just a mental battle. This is actually a spiritual battle. And what I'm fighting against is, is a spiritual war. And for me to just tell my kids what's true, doesn't, they don't gain that just through osmosis. They gain it through the Spirit. And the only way that they're going to know truth is if I pray it into them. i got to pray it into them. Knowing the truth doesn't fix it. Praying the truth does. And then we come to the, you know, when you get to the, the other stuff, when you get to... Uh, to um, the uh, breastplate of righteousness, I can, I can know what's right and wrong, but do I have the ability to actually live within that? No, i got to pray and be on my knees like, God, I can't live this way. And that's the communication with God. This thing doesn't have teeth on it until I pray, you know, and begin to ask him. I can read this, and I can try to live this way, and I'm trying to be in you and submissive to you, but that act of dependence is an act of prayer. And if I want to, if I want to, you know, stand in peace, how am I going to have peace if I'm not in a place of prayer? I mean, I mean, I can't, I got to be in a place of prayer if I'm going to have any peace at all. And with faith, I can sit there and say, you know, in my mind, try to fight the battle of faith. But in actuality, this is me going to the throne room of God and saying, yo, Meanie over here is calling me these names and doing this. What do you think about it? And that's a communication to dad where he's now engaged in the process. Even salvation itself. Salvation isn't of us. It's it's the thing he did on the cross. But how do I receive the salvation? Prayer. Prayer is how I receive it. God, I want it. I'm here. See, this is the thing. And I want to be really clear about this. My voice is just about to go. This is perfect timing. Here we go. Ready? If we are not in prayer then we are not fighting the Lord's battle. It's this clear. It's this simple. I, I, I want to make this very clear. I, you know, I understand that prayer is not an easy thing and it's not a comfortable thing. It's the thing that many of us don't know much about, which is why the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. But if we are not praying, then we're not fighting in a spiritual realm. Like this is the way that all of it goes spirit. This is the place where all of these things like that are in black and white truth and lifestyles of righteousness and all of that, the way this gets into the spiritual realm and takes effect in the spiritual world is when we begin to pray. And if we're not people of prayer, then we're not fighting the battle. And I want you to hear one other thing, and this is really important, is that if prayer's not our thing, then Jesus is not our thing. Honestly, Jesus, how do we communicate with him? Through prayer. If I don't feel like praying, then I don't feel like talking to Jesus. 
If prayer is not my thing, then Jesus isn't my thing. And this is what, this is what needs to be addressed right now. And this is where, this is, we gotta end on this prayer point. And we really need to address this as a church right here, right now. Harry Yeager, um, one time he told me that, um, when he first came to this church, you know, Harry's been a, a long term, anchor in our church, a great man of faith in our church. And he told me that when they were looking for a church, they came to this church and they were looking around and they, one thing that just grabbed a hold of them when they were here was they saw men who would stand up and pray publicly. And there was something so profound and powerful about it. It's because there's a call to arms because as the people of faith, we live in battle. And throughout all of history, things are a little different. There's some female warriors here and there, you know, in our armies now, and Joan of Arc and that type of thing. But throughout history, men have been called to war. And in the spiritual realm, it's no different. You know why I know that? Because in 1 Timothy, this is exactly what Paul says. He said, I desire that men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer. And I have found over and over again in the church that men stereotypically will say, prayer's not really my thing. That's what the women do. I'll get stuff done. I'll use wisdom. I'll use my gifts, my ingenuity. All of that's great and everything. But if it doesn't start with prayer, then forget it because we need less of us and more of him. And that starts with prayer. And so what I never want to hear again is that prayer's not my thing. That's somebody else's job. He says that I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And this right here and right now is a call to arms, men. Because we live in a battle. And what's going to happen with our wives and what's going to happen with our children and what's going to happen with our president and what's going to happen with our society and what's going to happen in the towns across the street and what's going to happen in this church is all a result of what happens in the battle. And he has given us the ability to affect the spiritual realm through one means, prayer. And in order to pray appropriately, we need the truth. We need righteousness. We are told that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We actually need to have the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, and the belt of truth. Why? So that we can pray. Once we have all of that working, our prayers become more and more effective. But the whole point is that we pray. And if we are not praying, then we are not fighting. And guess what? If we are not fighting for the Lord, we're fighting for something else. Because there's only two worlds. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And they're always in battle. And we are always fighting. And if we are fighting, we are praying. Some of the greatest generals in American history have said, the greatest weapon of all is intercessory prayer. Physical people, uh, generals of war, have said the greatest weapons are prayer because they understand that even physical war is massively affected by the spiritual war, which is one in prayer. And the greatest men and women of faith throughout history have won all of their wars by getting on their face before God because they understand it's not the work of men that's necessary. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God moving through prayer. The church is those who are in Christ. The church is those who function in community. The church is those who are on the mission to spread the glory of God, who live in the light and live appropriately in submission. And the church is without a doubt the army of God, because we are in battle and our weapon is prayer. Find ourselves in Christ. Find ourselves in prayer. This is no joke. This is no sermon. This is the word of God. 
This is life or death. This is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And you are no less in war right now than people standing at the battle of the bulge. You face the greatest villain of all times right here, right now, and as you walk out of this door. And I want to ask you if you're going to fight. Because this is no joke. Because our kids' lives depend on it. Because the future of the church depends on it. Because the kingdom of God is given to us and we have an opportunity in this day and in this age to fight for God. So let's pray.